producing sugarcane fields in Brazil. When the commodity fell, they bought up offshore U.S. development leases and massive tankers. Royal Saudi's holdings were more than a trillion dollars. Their hands were in everything. In times of crisis, they had even been called on to prop up many national treasuries around the world. He and Shira had met in the U.S. while he was at Reynolds, and she a daughter of a prominent law professor from Beirut, was studying economics at Columbia. They had been married for 12 years. The job had given him ease, most would say luxury, and over time they had acquired many Western ways. They had a flat on the Côte d'Azur, a penthouse in the Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue in New York. They took the family skiing at Gstaad and Aspen, Gary and Amir were enrolled in the finest schools. His only regret was that, to appease the royal family's wishes, his wife had had to give up her own career to raise her family. Sometimes he wished that despite his rise to the top of the financial world and the important responsibilities that had been bestowed on him, if she could handle the investments and he could manage the kids, both their home and the Saudi royal portfolio would be in better hands. Sunday was their traditional family meal. Afterward, they might head a few blocks away to Hyde Park and kick the football around a bit. On the way back, they might stroll along Shepherd Market, window-shopping the fine antiques and new fashions. These days, with teleconferencing and the financial network set up here, he jetted home barely twice a year, mostly to see his folks. He had been away from Riyadh for so many years, distance himself from their customs, that Marty pretty much thought of the royals as clients now, rather than brethren. And he knew because of the results he produced, his overseers looked the other way. Okay, who wants first? Marty picked up a plate and looked around. The cook, he said proudly, and spooned some of the stewed lamb over the yogurt and bread and handed it to his wife serving her first in the Western way. If his parents ever saw him, they'd be horrified. The trill of his cell phone sounded from somewhere in the house, his office. Shira shook her head and groaned. Now on Sundays, too? I'll make it short. Promise. Marty got up. You just make sure you save me some of that lamb. He winked a warning at Amir, whose appetite seemed to never end. With the vast amount of activity Royal Saudi controlled, there was no such thing as boundaries when it came to nights or weekends. Their interests ran every day, 24-7, across the globe. Though the aroma of lamb and fresh-baked bread made ignoring the call momentarily tempting, Marty followed the ring to his office and shut the door stepping over the cables of the Wii video game attached to the TV. Gary's Christmas gift. Another Western concession. The Blackberry was vibrating on the coffee table, and Marty sank himself onto the couch, tightrope walking over the brightly colored Lego transformer that had been left on the floor. This one was Amir's. Never ends, he sighed. He expected it to be Len Whiteman, his second at the firm. But Marty's mood shifted when he checked the digital readout and saw a private caller. 
his stomach clenched. Cautiously, he drew the phone to his ear. Hello? I hope this call finds you well, Mashur Abashir. The use of Marty's Saudi name jolted him. He knew immediately who it was. The first call had come six months ago, preparing him. He had just been hoping against hope, as time marched on. As their lives grew and prospered and became more acclimated, that the real call would never come. I am well, Marty replied, his throat dry, returning the greeting in Arabic. Our sons and daughters around the world require your service, Mashur al-Bashir. Are you prepared to do what is asked of you? Marty thought to himself that it had been so long. His views, passions, had all been so different.